Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for uh, June 8, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. Here in about 20 minutes, coming back to the Kudzu Vine for about at least a third time, uh, Kentucky political expert Matt Wyant is going to come and talk to us about all things political in the bluegrass state. And so excited about that. Until then, we're going to discuss a few national topics and starting off with the royal visit, if you will, the visit to uh, the United Kingdom that Donald Trump took and pretty much the whole clan, if you will, the whole family went over uh, for this royal visit. And it, it took all of them. To make all of the headlines, um, and I don't use the headlines meaning always well, uh, before he even touched down in the country, he attacked the mayor of London, the largest city in England, um, just completely uh, ripped him apart as pretty much as a person and as a leader of his city. Um, can't begin to wonder why he even thought that was the best way to start off the visit. Uh, Catherine, any ideas on why this is how he begins the visit, an attack, a takedown of Mayor Khan of London? I have no idea what was on his mind. He was just, I mean, I guess that that mayor has uh, criticized him in the past, but it's not a very good way to uh, ingratiate yourself with your hosts, I guess, which is not surprising for him, as we know. Yes, Tim, uh, the tweet that goes out, of course, uh, he uses Twitter as uh, di- diplomatic uh, diplomacy in some way. Um, why did he choose to do this, and, and what were kind of the ramifications of it? Well, let's see. Who all did he uh, insult? I know he insulted Megan Markle, and uh, then uh, you know, oh. a, a, a person of color. Let, let I, I'll, I'll move on past her. And then he insulted uh, uh, the mayor of London, who also is a person of color. I, I see a trend developing here. Uh, I mean, he, he, he called him foolishly nasty and a stone-cold loser. Now, he tweeted <laughs> that on Air Force One as it was doing its approach to landing, so he thought it was a good idea to insult a member of the royal family and for good measure, insult 
the mayor, the very popular mayor, I might add, of the host city that's welcoming him to England. That's 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 brilliant. Um, that's at the start of the trip, guys. That that that's at the start of the trip. That that don't count all of the other stuff. That's just at the start of the trip. And explaining why Donald Trump is doing this, I don't know. I've often thought it's because. The man needs some, you know, help. If Tim, got I'm going to give you a directive. I'm huh? going to give you a directive. Pace yourself. we got a lot to cover here. Pace yourself. That's just one thing. Now <laughs> no, we shouldn't talk about and... his something being wrong with his mind yet then. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> we may have covered that time or two. <laughs> but look, now, you, Tim, you mentioned uh, Meghan Markle. She's a, a, she's a member of the royal family. B, she's, I believe, the only American citizen um, of the royal family. So, so she is an American uh, as well. Um, but he attacks her, calls her nasty because apparently she's been critical of him. I guess, you know, out of 300 million people, probably 150 million of us are nasty because probably at least half the country's criticized him in some way that he wouldn't like. Um <laughs> Catherine, uh, how about a diplomatic uh, faux pas was this attacking a member of the the royal court before he goes over and visits? Really bad. I mean, uh, my understanding, they say that she is, Megan is a favorite of the Queen's. They get along very well. They're working on projects together. So I think that was a big faux pas and probably uh, influenced the way the meetings went, you know, the way the court responded to uh, Donald Trump. I don't know if you've, you know, I follow things like this quite a bit, and so do some of my friends, but there was a lot of, like, very subtle statements being made by the jewelry that was worn by the royal family and by um, the clothing. And, uh, the, I mean, there was a lot of uh, subtle remarks, unsaid remarks, uh, unstated comments, I guess you would say, coming from the royal family. So Yes, and I don't know. Yeah, that was I'm a not stupid thing, with that. And as we, as we go through this discussion, Catherine, enlighten us on some of this. Um, but Tim, okay. at what point could he, Donald Trump, before thing, this thing even gets off the ground, he insults Meghan Markle, he insults Mayor Khan. Could there have been a point in which Donald Trump stepped so far over the line that the royal family could have just said, "We decline to have you come to the palace and eat the steak and potatoes that we prepared for you. We're, we're just going to well, skip it." Um, We'll try the next president. I I think the royal family is so conditioned to observing the subtleties and niceties of the job that they are required to do when they entertain visiting foreign heads of state that they just, I I, I don't know, uh, 
overlook it or something because let let's consider just what he did with Meghan Markle. He he insulted the only person of color in the royal family only days before meeting with them. All right, then he took to Twitter and said that he never said it and said the fake news media headed up by CNN and the New York Times needed to apologize for saying that he did say it. Well, they didn't interview him. The, what were they got? The, the son over there in England interviewed him, and guess what? They produced audio of him saying exactly what they said he said in the interview because they did a, a tape of it. And to make matters worse, his reelection campaign posted that audio and said the fake news media <laughs> saying Donald Trump called her nasty. Now you listen and you decide. Uh, is that like the ultimate gaslighting? Because if you played the video link, it is the son's video in which he was saying she was nasty. I mean. How much worse does he have to get before the royal, that royal family would say, you know what, just keep lying, go on to France, don't land, you know. Uh, like I said, they, they are so conditioned uh, traditionally to doing what they need to do that they just go ahead and do it, I guess, regardless of, of, of who it is. And then have the place fumigated yeah. after, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Tim, I think you're right. It is kind of a job. They have this – at this point, that's kind of the deal. You do these ceremonial things, and, and you get right. – um, you know, you don't even get a salary. I mean, you just get any uh, want and need ever met um, for you, your family, everything else. Although I guess if there was a um, British version of OSHA, maybe they could have claimed uh, a workplace um, <laughs> you know, grievance. For having to do these duties, that it was cruel and unusual. Um, having to deal oh, with this. That's good. Okay, so, that's so let's keep it on going. Um, the people of Britain, um, you know, thousands, if not tens and thousands of them, protest, including multiple balloons. One of the major, you know, news channels. I, I get it. I get the idea. It's kind of like a. a Today show, Good Morning America, uh, Morning Joe type programs. I'm not sure if it's on their network TV or their version of cable. Not that versed in um, British uh, telecommunications, but they actually have the um, baby Trump diaper balloon in studio, and then Donald Trump downplays. Well, one is campaign, and other people are aggrieved, aggrieved by the fact that the TV station had the baby balloon, and then um, he tries to claim that there were just like this. You know, minuscule smattering of protesters, which the picture showed it was probably all the people that were missing from his inauguration photos um, on the mall. Uh, Catherine, um, how, what do you think the goal here was for the campaign to act so outraged and then Donald Trump to claim that there really were no protests or, or no significant protests? Well, I, thought, I saw that Piers Morgan. <laughs> Uh, quote, you know, where he said, well, it's great all these people are welcoming me. I hear all these people shouting, um, but I haven't seen any protesters, he said. I'm like, dude, those are the protesters. 
And then the Trump balloons, and then I don't know if you saw the robot, the giant robot that was sitting on a gold toilet. That <laughs> oh, was, yeah. like, roaming yeah. the streets of London. So, you know, I what I love about this is that I think we all think of the British as being sort of um, pinned up and, uh, you know, not so jovial and funny, but they really are. They're very witty and they have a lot of, a lot to say about things. So I thought it, I thought it was kind of an interesting um, look at the, not just the British family, the Royal family, but just Britain in general and their uh, embrace of humor and wit. But let me, I just want to give you one uh, example of, I was talking earlier about the jewelry so um, the queen, this is a Twitter quote, the queen famously uses her brooches as messages. For the Trump UK visit, she wore one that her family once had to buy back from a royal's mistress. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I just think that's kind of a, a funny, you know, a, you know, a lot of famous uh, women in leadership Madeline Albright used to use her uh, brooches to send a message to the people she was meeting with, and the Queen is famous for that as well. So I just think it's kind of an interesting little subtle. Catherine. Uh, what? Yeah, I, I, I have a question about that. It's been making the rounds on the web that she, on one occasion she wore a brooch that had been presented to her as a gift while Obama was president. Oh, did she? Well, I know is that, that um, Obama gave her one. I haven't, yeah. I haven't read that, but I, I would, it wouldn't surprise me. And then I love that he <laughs> gave, she gave him a book as, his, as the, you know, <laughs> royal gift. She gave him a book. Everybody knows he doesn't read. I thought that was a little a little bit of a gotcha too. I just think that all that stuff is very interesting. But I think it's amazing that um he was able like that Piers Morgan, who, you know, is a huge Trump uh you know, he was on Celebrity Apprentice and and that interview was very uh bias not biased, but very favorable to uh the president. But I couldn't believe he didn't call him on that protest thing. I mean, how could there's they showed this little tiny um, like block where there were a few people, few Trump supporters hanging out. It was like, you know, the size of Hurt Park or something, a little tiny uh, square in London. So it's you're right. It's like gaslighting. It's very or attempted gaslighting. Yeah, Catherine, there's a term for that uh, Piers Morgan interview and other ones from Fox and whatnot, softball batting practice. Um, that that would be what those interviews are yeah, like. Uh, talking about the queen's Definitely. jewelry, what she should have done is she should have sent somebody down with a roll of quarters to a gumball machine and just bought some you know jewelry out of one of those and, and basically – you know, sent the message to Donald Trump that that's what she thinks of his leadership, that it, it's about, you know, gum store quality. Um, and one final thing on this, which I've already talked about, speaking of that book, uh, Trevor Noah had a field day for it. I think he had the best word on it. He said that, you know, he got the book about World War II written by um, Churchill, 
from the Queen. He then met from Theresa May, and she got a book written by Churchill on World War II from Donald Trump, basically that he regifted it because he had no use for it. Um, well, let's get into that next part of this. Uh, there was a report that at one point he canceled a meeting with Theresa May, but then there was the joint press conference. So I'm not sure if there were supposed to be two meetings or they thought better of canceling the one meeting with, with the sitting prime minister. Um, Tim, you may know the details on that, that were there two meetings and one got canceled, or did he well, put a meeting back on the calendar? A, a, apparently there was supposed to be a private meeting that didn't come off, but the joint uh, public press part of the thing did. You know, the everything that's done in public, but the private uh, meeting portion of it never did, uh, never did come off. Yeah, and so, and then we get to that press conference in which he uses that press conference to, among other things, um, you know, threaten Mexico with the tariffs. Now that's a topic for later, but the fact that he used that that meeting in Europe that you would think of would be about European situations. To then, um, you know, kind of attack Mexico uh, across the um, pond, if you will, uh, a little bit of a, a front, I guess, to the Monroe Doctrine there. Um, Catherine, what do you think of that as a, a, you know, strange, you know, backdrop to talk about Mexican tariffs and immigration and everything else? He didn't know what to say, so that's what he said. I mean, that's that's what's on his mind. You know, he doesn't have any filter. So he had probably just read something and he had to comment on it or, or, you know, draw that, draw attention to it. I just don't think he has any filter. He doesn't have any, um, <clears throat> he obviously doesn't have any skills in etiquette or diplomacy. So he doesn't know, like he doesn't care. He says what he wants to say yeah. when he wants to say it. Well, there's more to talk about. We hadn't even gotten to the, uh, you know, visit to the palace and then everything after that, including the Irish bar, the meeting with the uh, Irish prime minister. I mean, there's so much more on this, uh, you know, a seemingly week-long fiasco. Um, we're going to put a pin in this, though. We're going to switch over to Kentucky politics with our uh, recurring friend of the show from Kentucky, Mr. Matt White. Welcome, Matt. How's it going? Good to have you back. Um, yeah, good well, to be Matt, here. we're gonna ask. Yeah, good to have you. Um, kind of, I guess I thought about letting Tim do the first questions, but I did have one that would kind of segue into uh, what Tim's going to ask about. And so, since you've been on the show before, you've um, joined a school board. Uh, tell us what school board I guess you got <laughs> elected to, and about you know what's going on with you right now. Yeah, well, I've been on the Elizabethtown school board for for a few years now. So. Uh, which Elizabethtown is a small community about 40 miles south of Elizabeth uh, from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So if you know geographically where Louisville is, just straight line down. And that's where I grew up and where I went to school. And I have a, a son that's in high school there. So I decided to join the school board. We've got a lot of challenges in school boards in Kentucky, that's for sure, and around the country, but especially in Kentucky. And uh, and it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yes. Well, let me ask you one more question related to that, and I may ask some things later after it comes back around to me. Um, education. A, a lot of places around the state, and particularly in the South, um, education politics have gotten really dicey with teachers. 
being upset with their state governments. Uh, Kentucky's one of those states, and I believe there was one uh, district in eastern Kentucky where a member of the Republican leadership in the state Senate was actually challenged in the primary by a popular teacher, and he had some you know, more Republican-leaning positions on some other issues. But when it came to education policy, he was very much you know, more of a Democrat, more of a progressive, and he defeated uh, the leader in the Kentucky um, Senate pretty handily. Is that kind of indicative of how even a lot of Republicans around Kentucky feel about the way education policy is being handled by the Republicans in that state? I would say so, and it was a it was a Republican uh, House member uh, in leadership House that, member, that not, happened. Sorry. Yeah, it was that was defeated in the primary. Yeah, I mean, I think that that it's for most people they look at education as you know a nonpartisan type issue, and part of the reason why it really hasn't really helped Republicans all that well is that, you know they they haven't really explained at all. What their positions are. I mean, those of us that that, view, that watch politics around the country, we understand charter schools. We understand school choice. Quote school choice. Uh, we understand all these issues, and we understand the underfunding and sort of what's been going on in these states. But when they run for for election, Republicans, they just say school. You know, they they want students to go to the schools they want to go to, to and just very vanilla things. So they're they're really they get elected, but they. But they don't. There's not a real debate on the, any of these issues, and so when there's controversy, when when school boards or superintendents or teachers bring these issues up, voters are a little bit shocked because that's not what they voted for. And so if they would have campaigned on these issues and won on these issues, they would have a much better argument, a better standing to take it to the to the people in Kentucky and say, listen, this is what you voted for. This is this is what we ran on. Uh, but they don't. Uh, they don't run on them because they know that they could be wildly unpopular, and uh, and so that's what really what's causing them trouble. Um, of course, we have this huge pension crisis in Kentucky, uh, which you know has been going on for the last I would say 15 years. Uh, that this governor has has made worse and has highlighted to say that we have to. Before we do anything else, we have to solve this pension crisis. Instead of working in a bipartisan way, he has used it as an excuse to cut everything in Kentucky, but especially in education. And, uh, yes, and well, that's, that's not popular. Yes, in fact, he has the least – lowest, lowest popularity rate, lowest approval rating of any governor in the United States. Yes, and speaking of Governor Bevin, I'm going to pass it to him cheaply. Who has questions at least about that? May have some other things too. Tim? Uh, yes, sir. Good evening, Matt, and thank you for being Thanks. on with us. As you just mentioned, Governor Bevin, according to Morning Consults, the most unpopular governor in the country, I think he's something like 19 points underwater. And mm -hmm. this is in a state, however, that leans like plus 23 Republican. Can a Republican governor lose in Kentucky right now? Absolutely. I mean, this is only the second governor in the last 50 years. And, uh, you know, they, we have a habit in Kentucky, a very recent habit of voting for Democrats for governor. We look at federal races and state races completely different. I think people look at 
what Bevin did in the last campaign in 2015, how he won and who he ran against, and say, well, we flipped completely on the state house races, and I don't think that's necessarily so. We have tilted Republican, but again. Voters, because this is not a presidential year election, because Trump is not on the top of the ticket, because there are no U.S. Senate races when we when we have our gubernatorial races, they look at governor completely different, and we vote for governor different than we do for other races. So uh, a Democrat absolutely can win this race, uh, and, and I mean if I had to put money though, even as, even though that Bevin is unpopular, I would put money on him now. But it's not so much because he's a Republican as just you know the fact that you know how you know it's going to be really dependent on how this nominee Andy Bashir is going to run his campaign and how he's going to be able to get his message out and withstand the attacks and uh, be able to counterpunch and I, that's we're going to we're going to see that yeah now you you said that voters in Kentucky treat their national and state politics entirely as separate things. We already know that that the president has publicly said that he is coming to Kentucky to campaign extensively for Governor Bevin. Governor Bevin, for his part, of course, is touting his close ties to the president. Is that going to make a difference in this year's election, or are Kentucky voters going to separate an unpopular governor from a, a rather popular president in that state? Yeah, I think it's going to be a wash because I think it absolutely could be the big difference, you know, sort of what we saw in the U.S. Senate race in Missouri, for instance. Uh, and you know, Trump just basically camped out there the last month of that race, and and it really made a difference, especially in certain parts of Missouri. Um, and that could happen here because Trump is is of course very popular here. The difference though is that you know Bevin is not just unpopular because of any policy. Bevin is is wildly unpopular within his own party for a number of reasons, and a lot of it has to do with personality. He just survived a challenge in the Republican primary. Uh, he he was primaried and got 52% of the vote, which is the biggest story for me out of the, the primary night is the fact that we had a sitting governor who survived with 52% of the vote. It almost went unnoticed nationally, but you know he survived, and – he is very Republican friends and folks that I know do not like Matt Bevin, and a lot of it has to do with his mouth okay, more than his now, policy. Uh, uh, segueing off of that, you mentioned his his problems in the primary. From what I see here in polling, he only has like a sixty percent approval rating among Republican voters in that state. But his lieutenant governor, Janine Hampton. Very, very popular with social conservatives, mm-hmm. and he drops her from the ticket. Mm-hmm. Why are she and the governor feuding like this, and why did he make this move, uh, uh, such a curious move at this time? Well, for, there are a few reasons why he made the move, but they're feuding right now because he is – or his administration is firing staff members in Janine's office – 
without letting her know and against her wishes. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then the governor is saying he doesn't know anything about it, uh, which doesn't seem true at all, if people know Matt Bevan and his micromanagement uh, style. Um, so so that's, that's like um, – you know, an unforced error. I have no idea why he's doing that at, at this moment. Um, she has been a pretty unspectacular politician or lieutenant governor. He was going to – he is facing a tough reelection, no matter how you look at it. And he brought somebody on the ticket who is an elected state senator, very popular, who has much more of an ability to raise money and is a better campaigner. Mm-hmm. That's why he made the switch, and I don't I don't necessarily blame him for making that switch, and and he could have smoothed over any differences he had with Tea Party folks uh, by treating Janine with respect. But mm-hmm. this is a guy who doesn't treat anyone with respect, and that's why he is very much hated by a lot of people in Kentucky. And well, it's it's not his policies that's that's hurting him; it's it's his yeah. mouth. It's him. Okay, I got one more uh, general election question, then I'm going to send it over <laughs> to Catherine. Uh, but the Democrats, uh, uh, Bashir also had a rather competitive primary himself mm-hmm. with with some with some you know pretty strong opposition at least among two candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, which party is more likely to go into the general election unified, the Democrats or the Republicans? Democrats, absolutely Democrats. I mean, they're they're uh, this this next week we're having unity, uh, not meetings but events uh, that mm-hmm. brings out Rocky Atkins, who's from Eastern Kentucky. He's a state representative. He's the minority leader from Eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. That's a, his base, and so he's taking Andy Bashir around, and uh, and Adam Edelin has taken Andy Bashir to uh, Meade County and in that area where he is from, and where uh, Adam won. And mm-hmm. is a, so we we have a unified party, and there's no mm-hmm. doubt about that because, you know, in the old days when there was no Republican Party in Kentucky, which was not that long ago, um, you know, we had these horrible knockdown dragout primaries, and everybody had their own factions, and uh, that you didn't really have to unify. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have gone through ten, uh, we've gone through almost twenty years of really having. Uh, even on the gubernatorial level, real contests. And so we have, we're in a position now in the minority. We know that it's better to unify and, um, and that we have a much better chance of, of winning if we do that, and it doesn't make any, any sense to be divided. Whereas the Republicans now, um, since they, they, they control the House, they control the Senate, they control the, the governorship, they control the U.S. Senate races, uh, House uh, seats, and also almost every member of Congress minus one. Um, they they have reverted back to our old ways of just a lot of infighting and divisions. So we're, we're more unified, and we are very motivated to go out and vote um, in in November. And I, I think that gives Andy Bashir a, a really good chance of picking up the seat. All right, sounds wonderful. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine. <laughs> Thank you for being on with us tonight. We're, hey, no we're problem. looking forward to it. We like to talk about Kentucky. Um, my question is about is about it was well led into by Tim. Um, so the party, the Democratic Party, is united. How well funded are you? Is the party going to be? Are they going to be able to really fight back against uh, Bevan, or are they going to have? 
financial and organizing problems. Like so many of our parties, so many of the right. We're gonna, we're going to have more financial problems than we are organizational problems, but even though organization is something that uh, that we've been behind on for the last few years, but being in, in such a minority, we sort of worked on that. And we've we've got leadership in this in our state party now that have really worked on reaching out to every organization in all of, all of our 120 counties, building building a base, building supporters, reaching out to people. So I think organization wise, we're in better shape than we've been in a long time. Money wise yeah we're hurting badly um the the governorship in kentucky unlike a lot of states like texas or some of these other states where it's kind of a figurehead um the the governor in kentucky has enormous power in appointments uh, i believe i read where this is kentucky's only the second state in the, the number of we're a small state we're, but we we are number two in the country in the number of appointments that a governor can make and that what that means is fundraising because that's how they right. raise their money is their, their appointments um and then we have a lot of roads in kentucky and we we paved a lot of roads over the years and that money uh paving money and road money went to democrats we are not in power anymore, and so uh, you know, ideologically, a lot of a lot of these interests weren't Democrats necessarily, but we were just in power. So that money uh, has dried up completely. Um, there really isn't a large, well-funded activist base here in Kentucky of donors. Uh, we're trying to build that, uh, but it just doesn't exist. And so, being one of these off-year elections. One of the few states with governors, uh, and seeing the poll numbers that I, I would hope that you know the National Governors Association and DNC and others will see, they can see well, we can pick up this seat uh, and put it back in the Democratic column, and really be a bellwether for 2020, because if we can knock off a Matt Bevin, who is a mini me to to Donald Trump. I mean, this guy want, this guy is a, such a bad wannabe Donald Trump that it's amazing. Um, then that is really going to give momentum to the Democratic Party nationally. Right. And so I would hope that, that that would be recognized. I know what it is. Um, and uh, Andy Beshear is going to have enough is going to be able to raise enough money to be competitive. There's no doubt about that. But you know, he is taking on a, a governor that can write a big check himself, <laughs> not to mention right. um, what the Republicans uh, can put in. So Andy Bashir is going to have enough money to be competitive. We're going to have enough money to win this race. Um, but I would hope nationally we can match Bevin and what the Republicans could, can do, and I think we can. And you said that the, you're you're well organized and you have like a f- there's a field plan and all that kind of stuff is all – in process. Yeah, I mean, I'm not involved. Really key, right. right, I'm not involved oh, in the right. campaign. So, but I do know that the the folks at the state party we've had, uh, we've had people on the ground for a while. We've had a plan in place. We've had we just came off you know 2016 election. I mean 2018 election uh, where we didn't win as many races nearly as we wanted to or needed to. But there was a lot of effort put into ground operation. There was a lot of effort put in throughout the whole state in voter contact. And in these elections like 2019, you're going to have less turnout than you had in 2018. That's really going to make a big difference. Um, and, and voter motivation, it killed us in 2015, the, the gay marriage issue 
in eastern Kentucky. You know, we made national news because, you know, we had a clerk that refused to, to yeah, sign. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it was a huge story. Well, you know, we had, you know, our attorney general uh, was the Democratic nominee who challenged that, and he did the right thing. But as far as motivation goes and, and at that particular time in history, that hurt us. There just wasn't a lot of momentum. There wasn't a lot of uh, – he also ran a very horrible ground operation or no ground operation whatsoever. Um, it, this is going to be different, and I think we've learned some of those lessons. I think there's no doubt the, the energy is on our side, not on their side, and when you have – a dynamic when it's about 30% turnout is what we normally see in these gubernatorial races in Kentucky. I believe the edge goes to us if we can keep the momentum going and just be on the offense completely against Bevin. If, if Andy could do that and there's more than enough ammunition to keep on the offense, I, I don't think he'll lose this. I don't think Andy Bashir will lose this race if we can do that. Well, that's great. That sounds great. Good news. Now I'm going to pass it to David. I know he has some more questions. Thanks so much for being on. No problem. Yes, um, Matt, I'm going to turn to federal races, but based mm-hmm. in the state of Kentucky. And uh, you have one of the most powerful uh, leaders in all of American politics that held in your state, Mitch McConnell. But he's also mm-hmm. quite controversial. I mean, there are a lot of people probably in the other 49 states that know his name and those on the Democratic side of the aisle that blame him for a lot of things, including uh, the way some Supreme Court justice uh, nominations have gone down. So the money should be there. Will the candidate be there to at least make it a competitive race, if not possibly win in some type of blue wave election in 2020? You know, I've watched Mitch McConnell races since 1984 when he first, when he first won. We beat D. Huddleston. Um, at every election, we think that that uh, we're going to get him, and because he's so unpopular. And you do need the right nominee. You need somebody that is going to have a base. You know, he's somebody that he wins because not just the fundraising. He disqualifies the Democrat, and he runs clever ads, funny ads, and he stays on the offense from beginning to end. Uh, he's a very – I know it's, it's, it's hard for people outside of Kentucky that I know to say – to think that this guy can continue to win with low approval ratings and just the guy's the charm of a, you know, a rock. But the, the guy is a really good campaigner. <laughs> the guy really knows how to do the basic fundamentals of, of politics. But we can win this race if we get the right person into the race, and – uh, there are three people that uh, of top tier level that I, I think that are going to get into the race. One I would really like to get into the race, but we'll talk about that in a second. The first person that there's a lot of buzz about is Amy McGrath, who was the Democratic nominee in the sixth congressional district, which is the Lexington area. She took on Congressman Andy Barr. It's a combination. The district's a combination between you know urban and rural, and it's a it's a District that a Democrat absolutely could have won in 2018, and she was leading in some polls at the end or tied in some polls at the end. She ended up losing barely. It's a race that she could have and I believe should have won, and I believe that she did not win that race and have that as a Democratic pickup. 
you know, she's a former fighter pilot, and uh, I don't think if you're a fighter pilot, I don't think maybe you can say former. She's a fighter pilot, uh, but retired military and uh, had great credentials. Uh, comes across really well. A lot of excitement around her, but she m- made a commitment that she's not going to run a negative campaign, and she kept to that, and that hurt her badly. And when you get attacked, I mean, forget about going, you know, on the offense, and you know, if she doesn't want to do that, okay. But when you're attacked, you're going to have to be able to respond. And her refusal to do that, to me, was malpractice. And as great of a candidate as she is, and as great on paper as she is, and how great her her intro ad was that got a lot of national buzz, the fact that she doesn't go on the offense, the fact that she doesn't defend herself is a disqualifier for me against Mitch McConnell. And um, so that's that's my problem, Um, unless maybe she learned that lesson and she – she campaigns differently because she has everything else lined up for her. She has national support. She raised a ton of money. She built a fantastic organization in the 6th Congressional District, really, really great organization. She motivates people. She can raise the money. She has the bio. She a great contrast with Mitch McConnell. But if you get into this or any campaign like this and you don't – you don't believe that you need to, to like you know bring up the negatives of your opponent or defend yourself when you're hit. I just think this might not be the thing for you, um, and it would end badly for her and for the party if she were to to keep that mindset. So, um, but she is almost definitely, I believe, going to run. The other person that's that's talking a lot about it is a guy named Matt Jones who is a University of Kentucky radio guy. He's a he's on Kentucky Sports Radio. Uh he's kind of a shock jock for sports is how I've always looked at him as. And I'm a huge Louisville fan, so I do not I've not like <laughs> Matt Jones. He, he hates University of Louisville and it makes it very well known. So I've never been a big fan of Matt Jones. Now politically I I'm one hundred percent in line with him. One hundred percent. And he is entertaining and um you know i think he challenges that you know he he goes with that sort of notion of you need someone like a trump or someone like a or someone who can get in there and say what what's on their mind and and it's very clever and sure-footed and and could say funny things uh and matt could would do that i think matt would be entertaining i think matt you know uh could get some votes in some areas that, that maybe a lot of democrats can't because he's tied to the university of kentucky but you know, can he raise the money? Um, can he put together a campaign organization? I don't know. Um, but he de- he wants to run. There was a good political piece about him, I believe, late last year came out. It was really good. Um, he's a Duke Law School graduate. Um, he's a smart guy, uh, very articulate, very, very articulate. And um, And it would be fun to watch him against Mitch McConnell. But I I just don't think he's the best nominee. To me, the best nominee would be a Rocky Atkins, who just came after, who just came in second in the um, Democratic primary. Um, Rocky is the minority leader. He's been the majority leader. He's been in the state house for a long time, which you would think that's a negative, but he relates very well to Kentuckians, most Kentuckians. 
he has a very strong base in eastern Kentucky, very strong base, that I don't believe would abandon him to vote again for Mitch McConnell. And if we had a nominee that could win some of these eastern Kentucky counties and can be relatable to western Kentucky voters, and he is, and also do well in the triangle areas, the, the urban areas, the Louisville, Lexington, uh, that would give us a shot to win. And he just came out. He, you know, he did so well in the Democratic primary that a lot of folks didn't think he would. He ran a great campaign, a great organization, and I just think he, you know, Mitch McConnell always does poorly against older men. <laughs> whenever he's whenever he's run against those types of uh, candidates, whether it's uh, in 1992, Harvey Sloan, who's former mayor of Louisville. That's the closest race Mitch McConnell has ever had, except for his first one. He won by two points. Uh, he ran against Bruce Lunsford in 08, and McConnell had to take out a, a second on his house to put in last-minute money to pull that one out by, I believe, six points. But, I mean, top of the ticket, won by a large margin over Obama. So that's the kind of candidate that he has a hard time running against. He would have a really hard time running against Rocky Atkins. And Rocky yeah. Atkins is more socially conservative. But if he could build an organization in Louisville, I think a lot of the liberals in Louisville, including myself, would totally look the other way and and support this guy because he's right on every other issue except abortion for a lot of Democrats here. Uh, but his pro-life stance helps him out in the state. doesn't hurt him in the places that we need. Yes, that's a, a good top When you spoke of a, a fun candidate that would be shocking from your state, I thought you might say Jim Cornette, who um, has a podcast that talks a lot about wrestling, but also just will not hold back on politics. I uh, think mm-hmm. Southern Bill Maher, um, right, the yeah. way he uh, would approach it. Don't know that he could win, but my goodness, would it be fun. I- I'd watch the documentary <laughs> about the campaign. Well, one more thing on uh, Mitch McConnell. Since he last ran, there was a Virginia U.S. Senate race. And a person that did not even win the nomination um, for, you know, the Senate nod in the Republican primary, I believe his name was Don Blankenship, he attacked yeah, Mitch McConnell in West Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. and he um, called him Cocaine Mitch. Well, that was kind mm-hmm. of shocking, and you've had to hear some kind of crazy backstory about his in-laws in China and everything else. But since then, Mitch McConnell is actually selling Cocaine Mitch um, items, or at least one item, on his website. Um, a, what do the people of Kentucky think about the moniker Cocaine Mitch? And is it a bit of arrogance that he's leaning into this? You know, I think that Mitch McConnell has an unusual sense of humor, if you know him. Uh, but I think that it is nobody in Kentucky believes he. He has anything to do with cocaine. <laughs> so I mean, I just I think that you hang a. I'm always been a believer. You hang a lantern on something, um, especially something so ridiculous. I don't think you, you know, Democrats have used the cocaine Mitch thing. It's ridiculous. So, to making light of it to raise some money about it, uh, it's not going to hurt him one one single bit. But is it arrogant? Yeah, I think Mitch McC- I think Mitch McConnell knows very well that he can do just about anything and probably get reelected. Um, and he can say anything he wants. He can do anything he wants, and my party is not 
you know, come close to, to knocking this guy off in a long time. So I do think it's arrogance. I just think he looks at his opponents, and he, he this guy relishes beating the crap out of Democrats on every level. And I have an enormous amount of political respect for him because when he started, I mean, I think we had two Republican judge executives in Kentucky, and he was one of them. And he built the Republican Party from the ground up, and he shared resources, and he raised money for him, and you know all you know our U.S. senators did was you know backbite or not help other people, and it's you know, every person for themselves because we were the majority party, and, and the, you know it, it, he he was the party, so he's seen this whole cycle for the last 35 years, and he's built it, and he knows he can now just you know, on the federal level the Republican. What Donald Trump says, he can go down to Fifth, Fifth Avenue, can shoot somebody, and still have supporters. I think Mitch McConnell probably feels the same way. Yes. Well, something you kind of alluded to, it was going to be my last question, was about the 6th Congressional District, uh, the one mm-hmm. that Amy McGrath ran for. And I remember on election night, it was the first one that came in, and it was kind mm-hmm. of a harbinger that the night was not going to be as good for Democrats as some of these special elections have been. But then some surprises came in, like the north side of Atlanta and California, and the night ended up being really good in the end. Uh, but that that race was kind of like it's maybe it's not going to be as well, it's good. Because, as it's because, team. like I said, uh, like I said, she should have won that race. She should have won that yeah. race. Well, and and and, well, and that's the, my opinion, and her her folks would would disagree with it, but she should have won that. Well, let's get into that. Is there somebody that's going to run? Or are people scared off thinking, well, if she couldn't win and that's, you know, off-year blue wave election, that it's not winnable? Um, what's the no, problem? it's it's – 6th District is winnable. The 6th District was drawn to protect a Democrat who was the incumbent, Ben Chandler. Um, so it's drawn favorable for a Democrat as, it, as a district in Kentucky can be. So we're still uh, under you know, that redistricting map. So it's favorable for a Democrat. It's it's uh, you know when Rand Paul ran um, for re-election in 2016, uh, the mayor of Lexington, uh, who was a Democratic nominee, won in those. Now he was the mayor of Lexington, so he's well known in that area. But he, you know, he was an openly gay mayor of Lexington, won these rural areas, and it gave a lot of people nationally hope that. Whoever the Democratic nominee or Amy, uh, because of her background especially, could you know could win that seat because it was won by um, against Rand Paul, and it could be it could absolutely flip to Democrats. You just have to nominate. I would like to see Adam Edelin run um, in that race, and Adam um, I think would be a great candidate for that area. He lives in that district now. I you know I have no idea if he would have any interest in it, but he would be a good Democratic nominee. Uh, somebody that knows politics, knows how to campaign, and isn't afraid to fight and to hit somebody, you know. And that's what you need. And in Kentucky, that sort of aggression politically works. And um, Adam, Adam could be that kind of nominee that would really go after uh, Andy Barr. Andy Barr is not well liked. He's a very vanilla politician, um, but you know he hasn't done anything drastically wrong in that district. It just it tilts Democrat. In in um, in in some ways, so we could win that seat. We should have picked that up, I believe. 
all the momentum and everything was going Amy, Amy McGrath's way, she just needed to, you know, take on Andy Barr and his votes and defend herself. And and it, it, yes. you know, I'd like to see her. I'd like to see her run again in that district, but learn that lesson and rather than take on Mitch McConnell. But I, I think she's being recruited pretty heavily to run against Mitch McConnell. Well, speaking of running again. Um, you said Jim Gray, mayor of Lexington, won those con- that congressional district when he ran for Senate. Um, his, why has he not been recruited or thought well, of running he, for that congressional district? Well, he was – yeah, he was recruited to run for the House last time, and he ran against Amy in the Democratic primary and lost. And so he he lost the Democratic primary two years ago against Amy McGrath, and he was recruited at the national level. So was Amy, but Amy raised so much money. Um, when she, you know, took she had a one-minute bio ad that was great, and it, you know, it was featured on Rachel Maddow and some other places, and her fundraising just absolutely took off, and she, you know, doubled up Jim Gray's fundraising numbers, and uh, and beat him. So he ran, and and uh, everybody said, look, this guy beat Rand Paul in that in the sixth district. We'll get him to run, and he got in at the last minute. He went really. He went. Um, he just didn't run a really good primary campaign. So I doubt that he'll get in this time around. Yes, I, that's one piece of information I didn't remember or was not pr- uh, familiar with. Well, Matt, we want to thank you for coming on the program tonight. And I have a feeling that given the, uh, Matt Bevan's uh, track record, he's going to make for an interesting campaign. And so we're going to probably want to have you back on before November 2019, if you're willing. Absolutely. I think we'll we'll get a much better sense of of where we're at after Fancy Farm. I know Labor Day is when nationally everybody really picks up, but in Kentucky it's really after Fancy Farm, which is 1st of August. We pretty much know the lay of the land at that point, and things start heating up uh, after the first weekend in August. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Catherine will keep track of farm things. Tim will keep track of fancy things. And then when they tell me that's going on, I'll get a hold of you, and we'll get you back on. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. That was Matt Wyatt, uh, one of our, our, our Kentucky political expert, uh, the western side of Kentucky. Um, the side of Kentucky, I've actually been through a lot more. I've been a lot more through the, the Louisville side than the Lexington side, if you will. Uh, but great to have Matt on again because Kentucky is – by far one of the most interesting states this odd year. And uh, if that race with Mitch McConnell could become a campaign, um, would even take it into 2020 as well. Um, well, let's get back to our discussion. And we got just a few minutes, so we'll have to stick and move quickly, of Donald Trump's royal visit. Um, so he gets invited to Buckingham Palace. He dresses like the penguin off of Batman. Instead of just going on the invitation, which would have been him, First Lady Melania Trump, and I guess Ivanka's a member of his staff, so she was invited. But instead, he brings Tiffany, he brings Don Jr., he brings Eric, he brings spouses um, of Eric, I guess. Um, He just, you know, plus ones this thing to death, treats it like a a house party at somebody's high school, the last day of school. Um, Catherine, how unbecoming was this of a world leader? to uh, treat this visit in this manner. 
Catherine, are you there with us? Well, Sam, she's showing up on the board. Can I just ask you I'm the sorry. same question? No, on on. Okay, go ahead, Catherine. I was on, I was on mute. I'm sorry. Um, I thought it was totally inappropriate for him to bring all those that that the whole, you know, gang, and um, then they didn't even know how to dress or behave properly while they were there, and it's just, it's just mind-boggling. What did you think, Tim? Oh, jeez. Um, uh, well, you know, we we keep seeing Donald Trump do things that we've never seen before. I, I mean, he he like the the gangs all here. I, I I have to wonder on the receiving end of this what the royal family must have thought. What because they they had to tell him in advance who all was coming. And 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 how they were able to to handle all of this, uh, it, it was remarkable uh, at best. Uh, uh, David, what did you think of the uh, "Let's buy a round of drinks" thing later in the trip from one of from one well, of them? Huh? Yeah, Tim. Thank you for bringing it, keeping us moving on there. So they go over to Ireland. There's two incidents over there. And the tackiest thing possible, um, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump uh, not only buy their own you know, tab at the bar, but they say, hey, a round of drinks, you know, on the house, on us. Uh, you know, we're going to pay for them. And then after they – they apparently claim they forgot their credit cards. Um, so I, I know <laughs> that you're you know, in the presidential yeah. family, but – my goodness, you don't <laughs> leave home without your, you know, whatever credit card you have. I mean, you don't go on a trip without a little bit of cash and then a, a credit card or two, however you do things. Uh, you know, maybe they still use checks. I don't know. Apple Pay. I mean, come on, guys. They just stiff the bar. And, of course, this is just something that Donald Trump has been noted for for years, and apparently his kids have learned it well. You just don't pay your bills. Um, and this really hurt the bar owner probably far more than the extra, you know, plate of food hurt the royal family. Um, so tacky. And it's another one of those things. Uh, people that don't like him are going to – the family are going to just use it against him. And then people that, uh, you know, do like the family are probably going to turn a blind eye even though they may have been stiffed in a job or a business that they run. And should know the feeling, um, but just once again, just an embodiment of ugly Americanism. And then let's kind of talk about the last thing, and then y'all can jump in with anything else you want to talk about about Ireland or uh, the visit. But he meets with the uh, Irish Prime Minister. They don't even have kind of a formal meeting. They have to have it on a tarmac, which was kind of weird scheduling. But part of this Brexit thing that is so scary is that. Because of Northern Ireland and Ireland, Ireland, I believe, stays part of the European Union. Northern Ireland then moves out with um, uh, England, and they have calmed down that bloody Sunday, that that, uh, Irish-Northern Irish uh, violence issue that just plagued them for so many years. That has really been maybe not completely resolved, but so far lessened. And then they're saying if they have to put up checkpoints and stop, and then they'll be able to, you know, people could then bring bombs through. 
blow things up at the checkpoint. It may actually increase the violence. And, of course, the prime minister or the leader of Ireland is very worried about this. Well, Donald Trump, of course, knows none of this. And then he just talks about, hey, maybe they can have a wall, and what a great thing having a wall put back will be. Um, how ignorant is this, Catherine, that he just has no understanding of this uh, violence that's plagued uh, Northern Ireland for all these years? Not surprising at all. I mean, he's not a, he's not a scholar, and he's not a history buff. He's a, you know, grifter. <laughs> I mean, you know, but Tim, can't you just be a? Go ahead, Catherine. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, Tim, can't you just be a fan of U2's music to have some cursory um, knowledge yeah. of this? Since I believe they've yeah. actually had yeah, two yeah, songs yeah. Uh, about it with videos. Yeah, you know, you or, know Harrison uh, Ford, or Harrison Ford fan. Yeah, really. You, yeah. you know, the the worst part of this trip. To me, all together, though, and, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it before we got off the air. That was those two sit-down interviews, with first with Piers Morgan and then with Laura Ingram. Uh, in the Piers Morgan interview, he, he was asked a, a, a question, as you know, about not serving in the armed forces. And, and, he, and, and the question was asked with the backdrop of June 6th. And Trump gives this rambling answer about Vietnam, how no one had ever heard of the country, and it wasn't that popular, and, and he didn't threaten so to go away. to Canada, but he didn't serve, but it, and because and, and he really didn't like the war. And, I, 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 uh, and, and then the, the thing with Laura Ingram, he sits down with a backdrop of all of those service people's graves that died there at Normandy, they're apparently waiting on Trump to get out there with them so they can start the ceremony. They've made an announcement that it's going to be a few minutes late, and he sits down at an interview at that somber place and takes an opportunity to trash Bob Mueller, who, by the way, was you know, in the Marines, a combat soldier, decorated, and the Speaker of the U.S. House, Nancy Pelosi, for good measure. I thought those two things were just the bottom of the barrel of the trip. What do you think? Hey, and, Tim, you got to add one more thing to that. He also said that he thinks his service now in the Oval Office makes up for not serving in Vietnam, um, which is just – I don't think that any of the presidents that did not serve in the armed forces would then claim that their presidential service uh, counted for it. Um, just just oh. bizarre world and so selfish. Um, Catherine, last word on anything on this visit. Well, I just want to say that um, that uh, uh, talk about a personal experience. I went to Paris for the first time during the Iraq War, and my boyfriend at the time and I had a long conversation before we left. You know, we're not going to say anything about the war. We're not going to say anything bad about the United States. You know, this was in the height of the Bush era, and we were very disgusted, but we were very careful. And we're just like ordinary people. I mean. 
I mean, we were, we were really careful. We didn't talk about it with anyone. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, normal, like, uh, ordinary Americans are careful about what they say when they are in a foreign country. But our president can <laughs> walk in and, I mean, I just think it's kind of a, I, I mean, I, it's, you know, it's a personal story, but still it's kind of indicative of, and I know a lot of people who feel the same way when we talk about traveling internationally, that, that, you know, you have to, you're, you're representing the country, even if you're just buying a Coke at a, at a, you know, Mm -hmm. shop or whatever. So I'm just disgusted by the whole thing. I think he just sort of shamed the country and in that few days he was over there. Yeah. Catherine, I'm going to stay true to my word and let you have the last word on Donald Trump's trip to um, uh, England, but I am going to take the final word on President Obama's trip to um, the arena in Toronto, and there's probably a reason in which 18,000 people at the NBA championship game uh, shouted MVP when he came on the board um, the other night at that game because he's looking more and more like a, a more valuable player when compared to the current occupant that took his job. Well, uh, once again, thanks to Matt White, and until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and